0: Amen. All right, we're there in Luke chapter number one this morning. And of course, uh, if you remember last Sunday night, we began a a series entitled Celebrating Christ. And it really is just a verse by verse uh, study through the book of Luke. And we're looking at the first couple of chapters of the book of Luke during this Christmas season. And we're looking at and studying the events that took place during the Christmas story. And of course, leading up to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And last Sunday night, I preached an introductory sermon to the Gospel of Luke. We looked at the first four verses of Luke chapter number one, and if you missed that, I would encourage you to check out our website or YouTube channel, and you can catch up on that there. This morning, we're going to begin in verse number five, and we're going to go through verse 25, looking at these stories that the Dr. Luke gave us in regards to the Christmas story, and we're going to begin by learning about uh, not necessarily John the Baptist, but about John the Baptist's parents, a man and a woman named Zacharias and Elizabeth, and these were two individuals that were chosen by God to raise John the Baptist. Now, that's that's an amazing thought, and I'll explain to you why. Keep your place there in Luke chapter 1. That's, of course, our text for this morning. But go with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter number 11. If you go backwards, you have Luke, Mark, and then the book of Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter number 11 and verse number 11. The reason that we should be very interested in learning about Zacharias and Elizabeth, the reason that I believe God gave us so much in uh, in this chapter about these individuals is because of who they raised. The Bible says, and Jesus said in Matthew chapter eleven and verse eleven, I want you to notice these are the words of Christ. He said this: Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he is the least in the kingdom of uh, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's interesting to me that Jesus would make the statement. He said, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. And of course, um, Jesus is not including himself in there. We know that Jesus is the Son of God. He's deity. But what he's saying is, when it comes to... Human beings, normal human beings that are born of, of a male and a female that, had, uh, that, that, that are not deity on this earth. Jesus said, among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. That's an, uh, an, an interesting statement that Jesus would say that John the Baptist was pretty much the greatest man uh, who ever lived, is what Jesus is saying. And then Luke tells us about his parents. And what's interesting about Zacharias and Elizabeth is that these are the individuals that were chosen by God to ra- to, to birth and raise John the Baptist, the man who Jesus would say there hath not risen greater a greater than John the Baptist. So. It's an interesting thing to look at uh, these individuals, and especially if you're here this morning as a parent or a grandparent, you're, uh, you should be very interested in learning about John the Baptist, we're about, uh, about Elizabeth and Zacharias, because we're about to learn of the two individuals that raised the greatest man who ever lived. And it might be said, aside from Joseph and Mary, that these were the greatest parents, Whoever lived. I mean, the most successful parents who ever lived, two individuals that raised a man who Jesus said there was none greater than John the Baptist. So go back to Luke chapter 1 if you would and and uh, I want you to notice this and, and uh, I want to give you several thoughts in regards to this. I encourage you to write down some notes on the back of the course of the week sheet. There's a place for you to take down some notes and of course when we were in verses 1 through 4 last Sunday night, we were reading the introductory statements and studying the introductory statements of Luke. Luke the narrator as he was writing to us uh, the introduction to the gospel of Luke. When we go go from uh, verse four into verse five we go from the narrator to the narrative we go from the introductory statements to now the story begins look down at verse number five and notice again remember Luke was a scholar. He was a historian. His story does not begin once upon a time in a land far, far away, but he begins in a very historical way. He says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, notice a certain priest named Zacharias. The first thing I want you to notice is, is that we see that uh, Zacharias was a priest. Now, I'm not going to have you turn to these passages, but maybe you can just write these down on, on, the, on the margin of your Bible if you'd like. But according to Exodus chapter 40, verses 13 and 14, we know this, that in order to be a priest, you were a descendant of Aaron. And what we know about Zacharias, especially as we get into the New Testament time, is that a lot of the tribes... Had been lost, and a lot of the uh, uh, descendancy had been lost in regards to people knowing exactly what tribe they came from. Especially because in the Old Testament, the Northern Kingdom of Israel, which had ten tribes, had been assimilated by the Assyrian conquest, and uh, now you really only had the tribe of Judah that was intact and, and 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 an understanding of who was coming from where. But we know this that Zacharias, as a priest. Was a descendant of Aaron. The Bible tells us that he was a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Bia. So I want you to notice, first of all, the pedigree of Zacharias and Elizabeth. He comes from a spiritual family. The Bible tells us there at the end of verse 5 and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was. Elizabeth. And again, I'm not going to have you turn here, and you can maybe jot this down just on the side margins of your Bible, but in Leviticus 21 verses 13 and 14, and and I'm going to preach to you this morning, but uh, as we go verse by verse by this, it might feel a little bit like a Bible study, and I think that's okay. Good for us to study the Bible together. Leviticus 21 verses 13 and 14 tell us that the priests, the Aaronic priests, were uh, supposed to marry a virgin. They were not allowed to marry uh, someone who had committed fornication. They were not allowed to marry a divorced woman. And they were not even allowed to marry a widow. The person they married had to be a virgin. So we know that Elizabeth was a virgin. We know she was pure. But not only that, we see that she herself was a daughter of Aaron. If you look at the last part of verse 5, it says, And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Zacharias was... Uh, uh, told by the word of God that he had to choose a virgin, but Zacharias took it even a step further. Not only did he marry a virgin, but he actually married a, this, a daughter of Aaron, meaning she was a daughter of one of the priests. This would be like saying that Elizabeth was a pastor's kid, you know, and she was uh, a girl who had grown up in a priest's home who understood the ministry of the priest. She was raised by a priest, and she married a priest. And there's just a lot of experience and training that goes in, of course, with kids that are raised by couples in ministry. Just uh, just a thought there uh, about these individuals. We see their pedigree. But I want you to notice, more than that, and if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. The first thing I'd like you to really notice about them, more than just their pedigree, I'd like you to notice their piety. The word piety is a reference to their godliness. And I want you to notice that not only did these individuals have a great lineage, but they had a great walk with God. Notice verse 6 there. The Bible says, and they were both, notice what the Bible says, righteous before God. The Bible tells us about these two individuals, about Zacharias and Elizabeth, that they were righteous before God, you say, how, what does it mean to be righteous before God? And of course, we understand when it comes to salvation, we understand that our standing in Christ is that we are righteous. We have been, His righteousness has been imputed upon us. But here, the Bible is talking in a very practical sense, meaning that their life, their conduct of life was that of a righteous lifestyle. You might ask, well, what does it mean to be righteous? How could I live a righteous lifestyle? Well, notice the Bible defines it for us. It says they were both righteous before God. Notice what it says, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. And then it uses this word, blameless. It describes for us that they were blameless. And here's what I want you to understand. You say, what can we learn about Zacharias and Elizabeth? What can we learn about these two individuals who raised? I mean, think about being the mom and the dad who raised the son that Jesus would later look to and say, there's no greater man than John the Baptist. I mean, think about that. I don't know about you, maybe you don't care, but uh, the Lord has blessed my wife and I with six children, and I'm highly interested in making sure that they grow up and serve the Lord and are acceptable to the Lord and walk with God, and that God would look at them and say, hey, you did a good job with these kids. You say, well, how do you know, how do you know what to do, and how do you know how to raise these children? Well, we learn one thing is this, that the man and the woman who raised the greatest man who ever lived, they were pious people. They were righteous people. They were pure people. They walked with God. They had a real walk with God. You say, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to be righteous? What does it look like to walk with God? What does it look like to be right with God? Here's what it means. It says that they were walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. You say, how can I measure my own righteousness? Here's how you measure it. When the word of God is preached... When the Bible is preached to you and it is applied to your life, you are given commandments. You are told, thou shalt not or thou shalt." You are told, God wants you to do this and God doesn't want you to do that. When the word of God is preached or when you read the Bible on your own and you read the Bible and realize that God says, I don't want you to do this. I do want you to do that. I don't want you to go there. I do want you to go there. I don't want you to think that. I do want you to think that. I don't want you to act this way. I do want you to act this way. How obedient are you to the word of God? I didn't, I didn't I didn't say how much do you know of the word of God? See, these individuals were not individuals who just had a lot of knowledge. We know they had a lot of knowledge. Zacharias was a priest. Elizabeth was a daughter of a priest. She had been raised in a in a preacher's home. He was a preacher himself. We know they had a lot of knowledge, but these were not two. See, you might say, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a pastor's kid. I'm not a pastor's wife. But let me tell you something. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a pastor's kid. You don't have to be a pastor's wife. You don't have to have uh, 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 been raised in a pastor's home to live life. Like the pastor does. To live like the priest does. You know, the Bible says that God has given us. uh, Paul told Timothy, he said, he said, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example, not to the believers, but of a believer. The qualifications of a pastor. Sometimes people look at people in the ministry and say, oh, well, you guys have these qualifications. You're supposed to live this life that is uh, 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 righteous and right. And notice the word. uh, You You see there in verse six, you see the word blameless. That's actually a word used in the qualifications of a pastor. That he should be blameless. What does that mean? Notice, blameless does not mean you're perfect. No one's perfect. Blameless means that you live above reproach. That you live in such a way where people would not uh, would not uh, uh, accuse you. They would not accuse you of, of major sins or horrible sins that there'd be they, they they that or if they accuse you, it'd be so obvious that it's not a, a reality of your life. That's what it means to be blameless. But please understand this. Paul gave Timothy all these qualifications of a pastor. He told him that you need to be blameless, and he told him that you need to be sober and you need to be vigilant. He gave him all these qualifications: the husband of one wife he, uh, to, to rule your own house well. He gave all these qualifications, but then he told Timothy, he said. Be thou an example of the believer. What does that mean? That means that I'm supposed to live, my wife is supposed to live, uh, these qualifications that God has given us in the Word of God so that we cannot be an example to you but be an example of you. So you can look at us and not say, Well, that's the pastor. He's supposed to live that way. No, you're supposed to look at us and say, That's the pastor. That's how we're supposed to live. See, you can be just as right with God as Elizabeth was, as Zacharias was. These were individuals that were real about their walk with God. They were not just spectators. They were not just showing up to church and hearing the commandments and saying, well, that's nice for somebody else. Oh, no, these individuals were righteous, walking in all the commandments of the, uh, uh, and the ordinance of the Lord, and as a result, they were blameless. By the way, to be righteous, you must walk in all His commandments. When you walk in all commandments, you, sh- you will be blameless. And look, please understand this. Please understand this. You, you can measure your own righteousness by measuring how obedient are you to the commandments of the Lord. When the word of God is preached and it's applied to your life, do you just kind of sit there and man, well, I'm not going to do that. That's not for me. I'm not a pastor. Well, then you're not righteous. These individuals were righteous before God, walking in all commandments in the ordinance of the Lord blame us. But I want you to notice a key word in this passage. Look at verse 6. And they were, here's the key word, both. See that word both? And they were both righteous. You say, Pastor, I'd like to raise some great kids with the glory of God. You want to raise some great kids? Here's how you do it. Have parents that are both right with God. Have parents that are both on the same page, that are both serving the Lord, that are both walking with the Lord. See, it's so sad that oftentimes you find couples and it's like you'll have a husband who's just like zealous for the Lord, wants to go to church, wants to be a soul winner, wants to follow, uh, follow the Lord, wants to lead his wife and his children, and then his wife's just like, ah, I'm not interested. Or oftentimes you'll find a wife who wants to serve the Lord, wants to submit to her husband, wants to do right, wants to uh, uh, have the family led in a way special. And then you have some, you know, dirtbag husband who's just like, "Ah, I'm not interested. The beautiful thing about Zacharias and Elizabeth is that they were both righteous before God. That they were both righteous walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord. That they were both blameless before the Lord. Listen, ladies, moms, please hear this. Elizabeth was not a lady whose husband read the Bible, but she didn't read the Bible. She was not a lady whose husband walked with God, but she didn't walk with God. She's not a lady whose husband got on his knees and prayed to the Lord, but she never prayed to the Lord. She was not a lady whose husband showed up to church on Sunday night, but she didn't show up to church on Sunday night. It was not a lady whose husband went out soul winning, but she didn't go out soul winning. No, 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 no. Elizabeth had a walk of her own. I think God, God has given me a wife who would show up for soul winning if I didn't show up for soul winning. She don't read her Bible because I read my Bible. she'd read her Bible whether I read my Bible or not. She'd pray whether I prayed or not. She, she, if I drop dead tomorrow, that doesn't ruin her walk with God, because she has her own walk with God. And by the way, Dad, that means that she didn't have a wife, uh, 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 Zacharias wasn't the kind of guy who, whose wife dragged him to church. What a shame whose wife had to, had to nag him, would you please lead? That was not the case here. Here you had two individuals, the Bible tells us, they were both righteous before God. I'm just telling you, I'm just, I just wonder, I'm just wondering if that's a reason why they raised the man who Jesus said, among women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. I wonder if that happened. I wonder if that happened, because John the Baptist had a mom and a dad who both loved God, both served God, both were serious in the work of the Lord. Now let me just say this, please understand this, that doesn't mean if you're a single mom here this morning, that doesn't mean that God can't help you and and be with you and help you raise your children for God. I would say this, if you're a single mom, you better get connected to a good church and get those kids around some godly men. Get them around some godly men and make sure that they're around some good men. That, that can be a, a, a help to you, a help to them. That doesn't mean that if you're a single dad that you're just going to fail. That, that, that's not the case. We know that God can help you. And as a church, we want to come alongside you and help you. But let me be clear. Being a single parent is not God's perfect will. God wants those kids raised by both mom and dad and God wants both mom and dad to be right with him. Now, if that's the situation you find yourself in, I'm not. I'm not trying to beat up on you. We want to help you. We want to love you. We understand that sometimes that's the case, and 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 I believe that God can make a way through the wilderness. But I'm just telling you that we see here in the life of these two individuals the piety of Zacharias and Elizabeth. They raised great kids. They they raised a great kid because there was two parents that were both right with God. I want you to notice. Secondly. Not only do we see the piety of Zacharias and Elizabeth, but we see, secondly, the pain of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Notice verse 7. And they, notice these words, had no child. Because that Elizabeth was barren. Remember, Luke was a physician. What we'll find with the physician Luke is that he, 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 it's not enough for him to just tell us they had no child. He has to give us the medical reason why they had no child, and he has to give us the medical diagnosis and the implications. He says, he says they had no child, and he says, here's my prognosis, he says, because that Elizabeth was barren, and then he gives us more information, additional medical reasons, he says, and they were both now well stricken in years. He says, not only did they have no children because she was barren, but now, he says, they were both well stricken in years. That's a very nice way of saying they were old. He said, even if they, if she wasn't barren, they were so old that they probably couldn't have children anymore. But even when they were not that old, when they were not that well-stricken in years, when they were younger, they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. They said, and they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were not well-stricken in years. And I want you to understand that in the Bible times, and and during the Bible times, this was a time of great, during this time, if someone was without child, it was a, a, a reproach. It was something uh, to be, uh, uh, to, that, that brought shame. Now, I'm not saying that's right. So, so please understand a couple of things. Let me, let me give you an example and then let me kind of give you an explanation. You don't have to turn here. Uh, let me read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. This is a story, remember the story of Hannah, the famous story of Hannah? Just to highlight for you that during these times, not having children was a shameful thing. First Timothy 1 Timothy one, the Bible says this, Now there was a certain man of Rameth uh, Zephoyim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, the Ephrathite, and he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. The passage goes on to say this, And her, referring to Hannah's adversary, referring to Peninnah, also provoked her sore for to make her fret. The word fret means to bring physical worry or anxiety because the Lord had shut up her womb. So I, I'm reading that to you to highlight for you that during this time, it was a shameful thing. It was a reproach to not have children. In fact, Elizabeth herself, if you look down at verse 25, Luke chapter 1 and verse 25, later on in the story, we're, gonna, we're getting there. When she ha- is, is given a child by God, when she conceives and is given a child, notice how she refers to it. She says, thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach, among men, So notice, she referred to the fact that she was barren and without a child as a reproach among men. Now you say, well, why is it that during these Bible times it was a shameful thing? Well, I, I think it was, there was a good principle that was taken to a wrong extreme. The right principle was this, that children are a blessing from the Lord. Amen. The Bible says in Psalm 127, in verse 3, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the wolf is His reward. This was a time in which having children was seen as a blessing. Having children was seen as something that that God rewarded you with, as opposed to the day and age where we live in today when people see children as a burden. So the fact that children were seen as a blessing and as something you should want and you should uh, want to have was a good thing. But some people took it to an extreme that was unhealthy, where they would say, well, the fact that you have not been given uh, children, then that must mean that God is cursing you, or God hates you, or something. And look, the Bible says this, that it is God who opens and closes the womb. And of course, when God opens the womb, He blesses you. And if God chooses to close the womb, and to not give you children, then you know, as Job, we should be willing to say, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So it's an extreme to say, oh, well, someone's not getting pregnant, so therefore uh, that should be uh, an embarrassment to them or a shame. That's a wrong extreme, but it was taken from a proper principle, which says this, that children really are, truly are a blessing. So we see that Zacharias and Elizabeth had a little bit of pain. They had no child. Elizabeth saw it as a reproach when she was given a child. She says, the Lord hath taken away my reproach among men. There was pain in their life. There was pain in their marriage. There was pain as a result of not having children. But they wanted children. And I would say this: to raise great kids for God, not only should they have parents that are both white with God on the same page and serving the Lord together, but they should have parents that see their children as a blessing, not a burden. Children are a blessing. I think the Lord that here at our church, Verity Baptist Church, we have embraced this idea that children are a blessing. That's why we have a family integrated church. We don't send the children off somewhere away from us. No, we want the children with us. We love the children. We want them around us. In the last couple of weeks, there have been three babies born into our church family. Praise the Lord for that. There's currently seven ladies on our prayer sheet that are all expecting, and we're praying that the Lord gives them healthy pregnancies and healthy babies. Our homeschool group has somewhere around 70 children in it. Hey, I'm here to tell you, children are a blessing of the Lord. And here we had Zacharias and Elizabeth and we see their pain, the fact that they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they were both now well stricken in years. But please, and look, at the end of the story, we're going to see that the Lord gives her a beautiful baby. But please understand this. And here's what I want you to know. Aren't you thankful for Elizabeth and Zacharias, who though they had pain, who though they had trials, who though they had disappointments, who though when they got married, I'm sure they dreamt of the fact that they would have many children, and the Lord would bless them, and the Lord would bless them with a, with a big family, and they didn't have those kids. And a year went by. And and another year went by. And another year went by. And soon a decade went by. And another decade went by. And they didn't have those children. And the Bible tells us, we'll see here in a minute, they prayed for children. But God didn't answer that prayer. And they didn't have those kids. And I'm sure there's a lot of pain there. As Elizabeth would say, it was a reproach. But notice, they never quit on God. They were pious through their pain. Sometimes... What I've noticed about Christians is we make an idol of our own families. Well, Lord, I'll serve you as long as my marriage is good. But what if your marriage is not good? Will you still serve him? Lord, I'll serve you as long as my kids, you know, I have a good relationship with my children. What if you don't have a good relationship? Lord, I'll serve you as long as my children are, are healthy. And look, I'm not here to try to offend you or try to uh, make you think bad things, but what if your children aren't healthy? What if your wife isn't healthy? What if your husband isn't healthy? What if things don't turn out the way you planned them? Will you still serve God? Because we learned something about Zacharias and Elizabeth. They are very godly individuals though things had not turned out for them the way they planned. We see their piety. And we see their pain. I want you to notice thirdly this morning. What do we learn about these parents who raised the greatest man, according to Jesus, whoever lived? We see, first of all, their piety. And by the way, you want to raise your kids right, you might want to try having two parents that are both right with God. I'm saying have a home where the dad reads the Bible and the mom reads the Bible. Where the dad prays and the mom prays. Where the dad goes home winning and the mom goes home winning. Where the dad is faithful to church and the mom is faithful to church. Where they're both on board. They're both righteous before God. You might want to try to have a home where the parents see their children as a blessing, not a burden. When you see your children as a blessing, you won't want to send them away to some public school institution. You don't want to send them away for some stranger and some daycare to raise them. You'll see them as what they are in answer to prayer. I want you to notice thirdly this morning, not only do we see the piety, not only do we see the pain, but thirdly we see the prayer of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Look at verse 8. And it came to pass that while he, this is Zacharias, remember he's a priest and he's doing his priestly work, it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in order of his course and I won't take the time to take you there but you can look at first chronicles and second chronicles again you can see that obviously when God first made Aaron and his sons the priest it was Aaron and several sons but as years went by and as hundreds of years went by this lineage of 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 the sons of aaron had grown and when you get to first and second chronicles during the times of the kings there's so many of them that they have to divide them into their courses the Bible tells us that they divided the priest into 24 different courses, and they would take turns to do the service of the Lord. So they would uh, live at home and do their priestly work and things at home, and I'm sure there was a lot of just kind of probably uh, farming and things that they did for themselves, but then they had a certain time, a course of time, in which they would come into Jerusalem and they would serve at the temple, a temple and do their work. This is what we're reading about here with Zacharias, verse 8, and it came to pass that while he executed the Priest's office before God in order of his course, according to the custom, notice, of the priest's office. So, because there were so many of them, the priest's office had developed this custom where these individuals would come in to do the work. The Bible says, notice verse 9, according to the custom of the priest's office, his law was to burn incense. They had different responsibilities, different things that needed to be done. You can read about it in the book of Leviticus. One of the things that had to be done was to burn incense. This would have been a a position of honor because of the fact that you would enter into the temple. If you remember our study in Leviticus, we learned about the fact that there was an outer court to the tabernacle or the temple. Then there was an inner chamber, which was a holy place. No one was just allowed to go there. But at certain times, the different priests would come into that temple for things like sacrifices or burning of incense. And then there was even a more inner Holy of Holies that uh, uh, housed the Ark of God and only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement was allowed to enter into that Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood upon the altar seat. But here we have Zacharias being, being given a great honor to enter not into that Holy of Holies, but into that holy place where there were priests who were doing sacrifices and priests that were doing different things and he was in there to burn incense and he was chosen randomly by lot they would show up to do their course their duty of the course and there was all sorts of jobs that needed to be done and 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 the bible says that they cast lots now the casting of lots we don't know exactly what that means but it was a way of randomly choosing and assigning the jobs it would be like uh you know like like uh uh grabbing straws or uh, i envision it as 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 today we probably take all of the jobs burning incense sacrificing an animal you know whatever And they maybe crumbled them all up, put them in a basket, and people just kind of randomly chose. And he chose one, and his job was this great honor to actually walk into the temple. Look at verse 9. According to the custom of the priest's office, his law was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people... I want you to notice the emphasis in this passage. The Bible says they were praying without at the time of incense. Now, I'm going to show this to you here in a minute, but I want you to notice that there is a connection between this idea of prayer as it is illustrated with incense. But here we have Zacharias, he is chosen randomly. Chosen by casting lots to perform what we would imagine was an honored duty that involved him going into the temple to burn incense. And while he did that, verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying without. Because remember, not everybody was just allowed to enter into the temple. The whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. Look at verse 11. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, I don't know how you read the Bible, but I was taught many years ago, especially when you're walking through these narratives, to put some flesh into the Bible. You know, get into it. Think of it as a story and try to see it and picture it in your, in your mind's eye. And, I, I don't, and, and again, this might, maybe this is my opinion, but I, I think God's a little comical sometimes. Here I envision Zacharias showing up to do his priestly do it, duty They cast lots, he picks a lot, and he's like, wow, I get to go into the temple. This is a great honor. Not everybody gets to go into the temple. Everybody else, the whole multitude had to play out, pray outside and be out in the course and do those things. And he's supposed to go in there and burn incense. This is a picture of prayer, and he's in there praying. And of course, I'll talk about how it pictures prayer here in a minute. But I envision that Zacharias is at this table. The book of Leviticus teaches us the different things and the objects that were in this this temple, in this tabernacle. And Zacharias is at this table burning this incense. The Bible tells us he's praying. I would imagine that he was being very somber and I would imagine that he was being very serious and I would imagine that that he was there and as he burned the incense and as he prayed, I don't know, I wasn't there. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I imagine that he probably bowed his head. He probably closed his eyes. He probably was being very somber and very serious and and What he was praying, we don't know. We know this, that he prayed for his family. We know this, that he prayed for a child. I'm sure that he prayed for the nation. I'm sure that he prayed for the people. I'm sure that he prayed for God's people. And the fact that they were under Roman, the Roman Empire. And the fact that they were under the oppression of Herod. And I'm sure that he sat there and he prayed and said, Oh God, uh, you've chosen not to give us a child. And Lord, you know we wanted a child. and, And he was praying, the Bible says. I mean, think about it. Very serious, very somber, very honored, very holy, very uh, uh, pious moment when he's burning incense and praying. And the Bible says this, And there appeared unto him an angel, Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. I I, I envision Zacharias at a table kind of like this pulpit, burning incense, praying, Oh Lord, praying. He opens his eyes and, you know, there's some guy like, I mean, an angel just appears to him. And he's like, "Whoa!" scares him. I mean, look at it. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Here he is. Look, no one is supposed to be in the temple. He's only allowed to go into the temple to do this special act. And he better... Get on with it. He's not supposed to linger and just make it last really long. He, he, he has a certain time limit. Uh, is apparent because people are, are, are concerned about the fact that he's taking so long. He's in there praying. He opens his eyes. And all of a sudden, there's this, this angel. And when Zacharias, verse 12, saw him, he was troubled and fear fell on him. But the angel said unto him, the angel says unto him what every angel says all throughout the Bible. Fear not, (laughs) because if an angel appears to you, that's the first thing you're going to do. He says, fear not, Zacharias. Notice, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. When Gabriel tells us here, thy prayer is heard, I don't think he's referring to only the prayer of the moment, although I'm sure Zacharias probably prayed in that moment. But I think he's referring to the prayers of a lifetime. He had been praying for a long time for a son. Elizabeth had been praying for a long time for for a child. And and maybe at this point they'd already stopped because they, they were well stricken in years. They might have thought this ship has sailed. But I want you to notice that God hears our prayers. And even when we forget our prayers, God hears our prayers. And, 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 and we see this beautiful picture here. The incense is a picture. See, prayer is illustrated as something that we do. We send it up. We send our prayers up to the Lord. Like the burning of incense when you catch it on fire and it, and it burns up to the heavens. And, and the incense brings this great smell and this beautiful smell. See, prayer is illustrated as something that we send up unto the Lord. And it and it brings joy. And it is a sweet smell. Smell! It is a sweet savor unto the Lord. The Bible illustrates this for us in a different way, in a similar way, but a different way in the book of Revelation. Let me show it to you. Keep your place down, Luke. Go to Revelation chapter 5. Last book in the New Testament should be fairly easy to find. Revelation chapter 5. Look at verse 8. Revelation chapter 5, verse (laughs) 8. Revelation 5 and verse 8. The Bible says, and when he had taken the book, The four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. This is Jesus Christ, having every one of them harps, notice this, and golden vials. What's a vial? A vial is a small container used for holding liquids. It says that they took harps and golden vials full of odors. These are liquids, fragrances that make a sweet smell. Notice which are the prayers of saints. Do you catch that? The Bible says that in heaven, when he had taken the book, and the four beasts and the four joy elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden fowls, vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. Now I don't know how God does it. It's obviously miraculous or supernatural, but if we take the Bible here literally, which I think we should always try to take the Bible literally, unless we know for sure it's not literal. That God, the Bible says that God takes your prayers and somehow quantifies them into some sort of a liquid. He said they are in odor. He puts them in vials, and, and they are uh, brought before him. He says uh, uh, that they are the, uh, the golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. Like the incense that is brought up before God. These vials would be open, and the smell would come up, and it's a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. I wonder how many of your prayers are up there. I wonder how many vile foals of my prayers are up there. I wonder if there's any vile fools of our prayers. I want you to notice that not only was Zacharias and Elizabeth, not only do we see their piety, not only do we see their pain, but we see their prayer. They were people of prayer. Listen, mom and dad. Pray for your children. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I remember years ago, this thought kind of dawned on me. I remember sharing it with my wife, but I thought this. If a mom and dad don't pray for their own children, who will? And I don't mean that in a derogatory, like, why aren't you praying for my children? I'm saying, if if I won't take the time to pray for my own children, who will? to God, to the throne of grace of God and pray. That's why we see Job, another great parent in the Bible. The Bible tells us he would get up early and he would pray for his children here. I'm just telling you, maybe it's not a coincidence that Zacharias and Elizabeth raised the man that Jesus would say, out of born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. Maybe it was because these individuals had a great prayer life. They prayed before they had children. I'm sure they prayed during, uh, while raising their children. And they're, they're praying, uh, they pray probably after raising their children. And I think, look, we ought to pray before we have children. We ought to pray while we're raising our children. And once our kids are raised, we ought to pray for them still. I'm praying right now. I don't. I don't know. My 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 kids are young. My oldest is 14 years old, and uh, uh, you know our youngest is three years old right now. But I, I don't know who my kids are going to marry. But I look forward one day to meeting the 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 young ladies and the young men that will marry my children. I look forward to shaking their hand, looking in them in their eyes, and saying, "I've been praying for you. I didn't know who you were, and I didn't know what your name was, and I didn't know you'd look like this. And I'm not really happy right now either, but." But I've been praying for you for years. I've been praying for the the young ladies that my sons would marry and the young men that my uh, girls would marry. And I've been praying for them to be the men and the women that God has called them to be. I'm here to tell you, it's not a coincidence. I don't believe that Zacharias and Elizabeth were men and women of prayer. And Jesus would say, among women there's none greater than John the Baptist. I'm just saying, if you want to raise godly children, maybe you ought to pray for them. You say, I don't have children. Near did Zacharias. I don't have children. Near did Elizabeth. But they prayed. If you have children, you ought to pray for them. If your children are raised, you ought to pray for them. Hey, hey don't, 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 don't treat parenthood like, oh, once they're off and gone, we're done now. No, you're not done. You, you get on your knees and pray for those kids. We see the piety of Zacharias and Elizabeth. We see the pain of Zacharias and Elizabeth. We see the prayer of Zacharias and Elizabeth. I want you to notice, fourthly, we see the posterity of Zacharias and Elizabeth. The word posterity means the descendants of a person, the legacy that they left behind. See, Gabriel shows up and says, hey, Zacharias, you know all those prayers, all those prayers, you thought God didn't answer them? You thought God didn't hear him? He said, your prayers were heard. By the way, sometimes God, his answer is no, but sometimes his answer is not yet. he He says, your prayers are heard. Notice verse 14, Luke 1 and verse 14. And thou shalt. Here's what's really interesting, is that Gabriel is about to tell Zacharias about his son who's not yet born or conceived. He says, Thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his, referring to John the Baptist's birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. I think they accomplished that, since the Lord said there is none greater than John the Baptist. And he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall, notice notice how they raise their kids. Some of your parents need to write this down. Notice, they shall, he and, and, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. That's talking about alcohol. You know what, you know what uh, 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 Zacharias and Elizabeth did? They raised a kid that, uh, that, that practiced separation. Amen. They, they taught his kid and said, hey, hey son, alcohol is bad. Alcohol is wicked. Wine is a marker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. It'll destroy your life. Drunkenness will destroy your life. Stay away. That's what they, they, they raise here. Ze, uh, 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 Gabriel son, And he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. They raised a kid that was separated. And, and this is probably a reference to the Nazarite vow. Like Samson and Samuel, we know that there are certain individuals who from birth were given to the Nazarite vow. But I want you to notice, they raised a child that was separated. Not only did they cha- uh, raise a child that was separated, they also raised a child that was spirit-filled. Notice the last part of verse 15. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Amen. Hey, young person, you can be filled with the Spirit of God. Not something that's for adults, it's for everybody. Look at verse 16, And many of the children of Israel shall turn to the Lord their God. Not only did they raise a kid that was separated, not only did they raise a kid that was spirit-filled, they raised a kid that was a soul winner. And many of the children of Israel shall return to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and the power of Elias to turn the heart of the fathers, to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. See, what was the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry? He was to go before the Lord to prepare the people for the Lord, to make ready a people for the Lord. Not only was he separated, not only was he spirit-filled, not only was he a soul winner, but they raised a kid who was a servant. He served others. He made ready the people and prepared them for the Lord. See, they got a vision. Gabriel, Gabriel said, let me tell you the kind of kid you're going to raise. Go to, go to Proverbs if you would. Proverbs 22. If you open your Bible, just right in the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalms. Right after Psalms, you have the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 22. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question, Mom. Let me ask you a question, Dad. What if your greatest accomplishment in life is not something you did, but someone you raised? I think we might treat our parenting a little different. If we realize that the greatest thing that we may do for the cause of Christ, the greatest legacy we might leave as children of God, it's not some great movement we led, although I'm all for leading great movements. It's not some great sermon that's preached, although I'm all for preaching great sermons. It's not some great accomplishment that we accomplish. What if our greatest accomplishment in life is not something you do, but someone you raise? I'm just saying you ought to get a vision for your kids. You say, what should my vision be? I don't know. You, you come up with your own vision, but if, if, you, if you can't, then come up with Elizabeth and Zachariah's vision. How about raising kids that are separated? How about raising kids that are spirit-filled? How about raising kids that are soul winners? How about raising kids that serve the Lord? Proverbs 22 and verse 6, I want you to see it. The Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go. We live today in a society where parents think, well, you know, I just have them and I just clothe them and I just house them and I just make sure they're fed. But that's all I do. Listen, if that's all you think parenting is, making sure they have clothes and three square meals and a roof over their head, your, your parenting is the equivalent of the penitentiary. You might as well be a prison. If that's all you think your job is, No, here's what a parent's job is, to train up a child in the way he should go. For us to tell our kids, this is the way you should go. This is the way you should live. This is the things you ought to believe. This is the way you ought to live your life. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Go to Proverbs 29, look at verse 17. Excuse me, look at verse 18. Proverbs 29, verse 18. Proverbs 29 verse 18 the Bible says this where there is no vision the people perish but he that keepeth the law happy is he. Now we like that verse and we quote that verse a lot and there's nothing wrong with quoting that verse just all on its own. Where there is no vision the people perish. But I want you to notice the context of that verse. Verse 18 says where there is no vision the people perish. The context of the verse mom the context of the verse dad is verse 17. Correct thy son and he shall give thee rest. Yea he shall give delight unto thy soul. That's the context of where there is no vision the people perish I'm just saying why don't you get a vision for your children my wife and I were just talking about a lady we know just a week ago we we're talking about lady not not anybody in our church this lady had many children many children and all except for one ended up being excuse me failures And I don't mean failures in a spiritual sense. I'm saying what the world would call failures. Drunkards and drug addicts. Things like that. And the interesting thing about this lady is that she doesn't see herself as a failure. Because by the world's philosophy, in a worldly mindset, she's not responsible for how her kids turn out. But let me tell you something. The Bible says that we as parents ought to train up our children the way they should go. Now look, I'm not trying to beat up on you. If you didn't raise your kids in, in, in church, you didn't get saved to later in life, and, and your kids didn't grow up to serve the Lord, I'm not trying to beat up on you. Listen. Zacharias and Elizabeth are the type of people that grew... I I can relate to Zacharias and Elizabeth. They grew up in the Lord. They grew up in the things of God. But there's other examples in the Bible like Paul, people who lived their lives for a long time going the wrong direction. And Paul said, he said, forgetting those things which are behind. And reaching forth unto those things which are before. You say, well, I didn't hear this kind of preaching when I was raising my kids. I wish I would have. Well, listen, I, I'm not preaching this to help you get depressed or discouraged. But you know what you can do? You can forget those things which are behind. And you can reach forth into those things which are before. And if you've got some grandkids, you ought to invest in them. And you say, well, I don't have any grandkids. Okay, well, there's a whole lot of families here that you can help and support. You say, well, how do I do that? How about you pray for them? How about you get on your knees and, and pray and, and, and pray for the moms and dads of this church and say, Lord, will you help uh, these parents to not make the same mistakes I made? Would you help me to be the kind of church member that gives the right example so that these kids could grow up seeing adults that love the Lord just like their mom and dad? I'm not trying to beat up on you, I, I, but I am saying this. And look, and, and I also understand, and please understand this, that kids eventually become adults and, and they make their own choices and they're responsible for their own actions. And, and we understand that. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you're going to be held liable for your kids' actions, you know, uh, for the rest of their lives. But I am saying this, that maybe moms and dads ought to get a vision for their children. See, I want to train up my children the way they should go. I want them to love God and serve God. I'm just saying I wonder if Zacharias and Elizabeth were such great parents because not only were they both right with God, and not only did they see their children as a blessing and not a burden, not only did they pray for their child, but they got a vision for their child, a vision and a direction early on. They said, we're going to raise a kid that's separated. We're going to raise a kid that's spirit-filled. We're going to raise a kid that's a soul winner and a kid that serves others. I want you to notice fifthly. I've got two more. I'll try to do them quickly. We see the piety, we see the pain, we see the prayer, we see this posterity. I don't want you to notice the problem of Zacharias and Elizabeth. You know nobody's perfect. These are pretty good people. They had a problem. Notice it in verse 18. And Zacharias said unto the angel Gabriel just showed up, right? Remember, they're still in the temple. He's burning incense, he's praying, opens his eyes, like, hey, the angel Lord appears, says, hey, you know that prayer you've been praying, those kids you've been asking for? The Lord has heard your prayers. You're going to raise this man, John the Baptist, and, and, and we learn about it. And Zacharias said unto the angel, his response is, whereby, the word whereby means by which means or how is this going to happen he says whereby shall I know this I want you to understand that Zacharias is at this moment not speaking out of curiosity like wow this is amazing how are you going to do it he's speaking critically whereby shall I know this how are you going to do that Huh? we know that it was critical because of verse 19 and the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these glad tidings. Look at verse 20. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not able to speak, until the day that these things shall be performed. Notice these words. Because thou believest not my words. So Zacharias is having a lack of faith here. Zacharias doubted that God could do what God said he would do, you say, why did Zacharias doubt? Here's why he doubted because his focus was on himself. Notice verse 18. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? Notice his focus, for I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. <laughs> Zachariah says, He's focusing in on himself. He's looking at himself. Gabriel told him, You're gonna have children. He said, We've been trying to have children. I've been praying for children. It was years, and then decades, and and I'm an old man, and Gabriel, I'm not sure if you've seen my wife lately, but she's well stricken in years. Zacharias doubted, because his focus was on himself. He said, I can't do that. I'm an old man. My wife is well stricken in years. Whereby shall I know this? Why don't you notice Gabriel's response, verse 19. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel. I think that's how he said it. I don't know. <laughs> I am Gabriel. You know that Gabriel is one of the three angels the Bible gives us their name. We know the, 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 the name of three angels, Gabriel, Michael, and Abaddon. He says, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and is sent to speak unto thee and show thee these glad tidings. See, Zacharias was focused on himself. I am old. And Gabriel says, stop focusing on yourself and focus on God. Don't tell me who you are. Let me tell you who I am. I am Gabriel. Do you know who I am? I am Gabriel. I'm the same angel that 500 years ago showed up to Daniel in the Old Testament and told Daniel that a Messiah was coming. I'm the angel that's also going to go to Mary six months from now and say that you're going to conceive a child in the womb as a virgin, as a miracle of God. He said, don't tell me who you are and what you can do. He said, focus on God. I am Gabriel. Do you understand that? God sent me. God sent me to tell you this. Let me tell you something. All of our faith problems are a focus problem. I can't go soloing; it's because you're focused on yourself. I can't be a tither; that's because you're focused on yourself. I can't raise children for God; that's because you're focused on yourself. Quit focusing on yourself and focus on God. I am Gabriel that stands in the presence of God. Here's what Gabriel saying: He's like, Do you understand that I was standing in the presence of God, Almighty God. And God himself said, I want you to go down there and give this message to Zacharias. So don't tell me who you are. Let me tell you who God is. We ought to stop telling our problems who we are and start telling our problems who God is. We see the problem of Zacharias. He doubted because his focus was on himself. But Gabriel encouraged him to get his focus on God. He says, I am an old man. And Gabriel says, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and in to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. I said, number one, we saw the piety of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Number two, we saw the pain. Number three, we saw the prayer. Number four, we saw the posterity. Number five, we saw the problem. Let me give you the last one. We'll finish up. We see the postponement of Zacharias and Elizabeth. It's really interesting to me that here we have a man and a woman who the Bible tells us, and by their own testimony, are well stricken in years. They've been wanting a child for a long time. And now Gabriel appears to them and says, God's going to give you a child. Don't you think you'd be excited to tell somebody? Don't you think you'd be excited to go home and tell your wife, an angel appeared to me and said, we're going to have a child. You know those prayers we've been praying? Look at verse 20. And behold, thou shalt be dumb. Some of you guys, that's your life verse right there. But (laughs) the word dumb there is not talking about intelligence. It's talking about not being able to speak. Notice, and not be able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed. Because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias. Remember, he wasn't supposed to be there that long. The people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision. No, he comes out and they're saying, what took so long? And he's like, "Ah." he couldn't speak. And they perceived that he had seen the vision of the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. See, not only is it interesting that because of Zechariah's lack of faith, his announcement was postponed. You're not going to be able to talk about this until the thing shall be performed. It adds a whole new layer of interest when you realize that up to this point, God had not spoken to his people, we're told in about 400 years. Go, maybe, to the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Just real quickly, we're going to look at Malachi and Luke, and we'll finish up. Malachi chapter 3. Between the Old and the New Testament is a period known as the silent years. We're told it's about 400 years. It's called the silent years because God did not speak to his people. Now, there's a lot that went on in these years, and I don't have the time to develop it. But when we left the Old Testament, the Medo-Persian Empire was in power. The Jews had been released from their captivity, brought back into their land where they had rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the wall. Fast forward 400 years later, we've seen the rise and fall of the Medo-Persian Empire. We've seen the rise and fall of Alexander the Great. We've seen the rise of the Roman Empire. We've seen the world power structure go from the east to the west. We've seen the language of the world go into a Greek-speaking world, just like today we would say, because the United States of America, the power and the influence it is in the English-speaking world. You can go anywhere in this world and speak English to people. Greek was the language of the world due to the influence of Alexander the Great. Things had changed dramatically over 400 years, and God had not spoken. At the close of the Old Testament, the close of the book of Malachi, God ends the Old Testament and does not speak for 400 years. And then when God finally chooses to move, when God finally chooses to speak, when God finally says, okay, Gabriel, it's time, go. He goes down to speak to Zacharias, to tell him that what God is doing. Then Zacharias is told, you're not allowed to speak till the things be performed. Now, here's what's interesting about the book of Luke. Remember, we looked in the introduction of Luke that it is one of the most descriptive, one of the most detailed books of the gospel, the most descriptive and detailed book. The Gospel of Luke is the perfect segue between the Old and the New Testament. Here's why. Because the Old Testament ends with the message from Malachi the prophet prophesying that a messenger would come. Let me show it to you real quickly. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger. This is how, how the Old Testament ends. The prophet Malachi at the end of the Old Testament says, Hey, let me tell you the next thing to be looking for. Here's the next thing that's going to happen on God's calendar. They didn't realize it would be 400 years later. Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. Look at Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. Tell me if this sounds familiar with what we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet. Malachi said, I will send Elijah the prophet. The, Gabriel, uh, the angel Gabriel, he said that uh, John the Baptist, he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. Malachi 4 5. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Doesn't that, that sounds, that's, Gabriel's quoting that in Luke 1.17 when he says, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. See, the Old Testament ends, the Old Testament ends with the prophet Malachi. By the way, isn't it interesting, the last word there, of verse 6, curse. That's how it ends. The Old Testament ends with Malachi saying, there's coming a messenger. Look for a messenger that will prepare the way of the Lord. 400 years go by. The years of silence. The world power structure has changed. The world economy has changed. The world language structure has changed. And Luke opens his gospel with the story of how God sent a messenger. Luke 1, verse 23. We'll finish up 23, 24, 25. And it came to pass... "...that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, when Zacharias was done with his ministry, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth, notice the word, conceived, and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to took away my reproach, to take away my reproach among men." It's interesting to me that the book of Luke begins. It begins with this message given to Zacharias after 400 years of silence, and then the angel says, wait a few more months before you can tell people about this. It begins with this message, and here it is. God is doing something. For 400 years, people probably thought, this Bible thing is done. They said a messenger was coming, but a messenger hasn't came. When it happened, the Medo-Persian Empire was in power, but then Alexander the Great rose, and he took over the Medo-Persian Empire. And then Alexander the Great died, and, and, his, and his kingdom was divided by the four generals, and, and then it was overtaken by the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire has been around for 400 years as a republic, and they have not had a king, but then Julius Caesar came on the throne and took over the Republic of the Roman Empire and turned it into an empire, and now his, his lineage, Augustus, is now in power. And God sends Gabriel, to say, I haven't forgotten. God is doing something. That's how we begin the book of Luke. And we're going to pick it up right there tonight. I encourage you to be back with us tonight. Because this morning we saw the angelic birth announcement of John the Baptist. Tonight we'll see the angelic birth announcement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the story of Christmas is a story that God is at work Amen. in our lives. Amen. Let's bow our heads in our word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this great story in the Bible. Thank you for Zacharias and Elizabeth. I understand they were human beings. They were not perfect. But we can sure learn from them. They did a good job raising their son. And Lord, I pray you'd help us do a good job raising ours. Thank you for the story of Christmas, the events leading up to Christmas, that you have not forgotten and you are at work. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.